I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. State Representative Summer Lee is setting her sights on Capitol Hill. She announced just moments ago that she is running for U.S. Representative Mike Doyle's seat. He announced yesterday that he will not seek re-election. Back in 2018, after Summer Lee had managed a successful write-in campaign for a school board candidate in the Pittsburgh area, her friends in the local Democratic Socialist of America chapter suggested she take a shot at primarying State Representative Paul Costa who'd been representing the district for nearly 20 years. In 2018, community organizer and Howard Law School grad Summer Lee mounted a primary challenge against an incumbent state representative, a popular establishment Democrat who'd held his seat for 19 years. In a stunning upset that made national news, she crushed him by more than two to one. Summer Lee and Sarah Inamorato each defeated incumbents to win their primary races for the Pennsylvania state legislature. That same year, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez upset Joe Crowley, and the other three members of the squad won their races and went to Congress. Summer Lee, the first black woman from western Pennsylvania elected to the legislature, continued building her base of support, and in the four years since then, she's built something of a democratic socialist machine, helping candidates across the area oust incumbents and shift the balance of power. This cycle, with Congressman Mike Doyle announcing his retirement, she stepped into the open primary. So Doyle endorsed Steve Irwin, who labor journalist Mike Elk later exposed as having done significant work in what companies like to call union avoidance. That helped keep the unions from going all in for Irwin. And six weeks ago, the group Emily's List put a poll into the field and found that Summerlee enjoyed a commanding 25-point lead over Irwin 38-13. to When voters were presented with more information about the candidates, Lee climbed up to 49% to Irwin's 21, and a third contender, University of Pittsburgh law professor Jerry Dickinson, a progressive who'd run in 2020 against Doyle, got 15%. The poll, conducted by GQR, also found Lee holding a comfortable plus 29 approval rating among likely primary voters. In other words, the race was basically over, and the 34-year-old Lee was on her way toward becoming the newest addition to the squad. And then APAC stepped in. APAC this cycle is largely funded by Republican donors, having shed its longtime bipartisan image and has endorsed more than 100 Republicans who voted to oppose certifying Biden's election. Yet it jumped into this Democratic primary, spending millions of dollars blasting Summer Lee for being, quote, not a good enough Democrat. She calls herself a Democrat, but Summer Lee said she wanted to dismantle the Democratic Party, dismantle it. And she's done everything in her power to do just that. When Joe Biden was running against Trump, Summer Lee attacked Biden's character, said he'd take us backwards. And Lee refused to support Biden's infrastructure plan that's now rebuilding bridges and roads in western Pennsylvania. Summer Lee, more interested in fighting Democrats than getting results. UDP is responsible for the content of this ad. Now, APAC put roughly $2 million behind that ad and ones like it, part of their $3 million in total spending. That kind of money blanketing the airwaves took a runaway blowout election and turned it into a dead heat. As of now, Lee leads with 446 votes and seems likely that she'll be certified the winner by the end of the week, though Irwin is now threatening a recount. She'll have no trouble in the general election if she wins the primary. Now in Oregon, progressive candidates also stunned their big money backed opponents. A super PAC funded by the pharmaceutical industry blew more than a million dollars in an effort to salvage the career of former Blue Dog chair Kurt Schrader, the Oregon Democrat who cast the deciding vote against drug pricing reform in the House Energy and Commerce Committee and organized with Representative Josh Gottheimer to derail President Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda. His opponent, Jamie McLeod Skinner, lambasted him repeatedly as, quote, the Joe Manchin of the House. Because Oregon votes by mail and some ballots were blurred and unreadable in areas favorable to Schrader, results may not be known until early next week. But despite a funding disparity of some 10 to 1, the incumbent is on the ropes and looks like he is probably going to lose. Another super PAC in Oregon, funded by a cryptocurrency fortune and organized around the project of pandemic prevention called Protect Our Future, spent some $10 million to boost Carrick Flynn, 
while the super PAC linked to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, House Majority PAC, also dropped a million dollars into the race. It backfired, and local Democrats as well as national progressives, including the Congressional Progressive Caucus PAC and Working Families Party, rallied behind State Representative Andrea Salinas, who also appears poised for a victory. Now, back in Pennsylvania, the marquee race on the Democratic side turned into a blowout. Democratic Governor John Fetterman won over the party-backed Connor Lamb, even as he was hospitalized and recovering from a stroke. Sarah Longwell on the podcast The Focus Group recently put Fetterman's appeal this way. I got to tell you, I do so many focus groups, and I can count on one hand the number of candidates where people are actually enthusiastic about them, but they are enthusiastic about Fetterman. I got to tell you, though, something happened in the Trump voter focus groups that basically never happens which is that there were a couple people who were open to voting for Fetterman. Party bosses also tried to take out three Philadelphia state representatives for being too progressive and were trounced in all three races. Along the way, they saw one of their own incumbents ousted by a nurse, Tariq Khan, running to their left. And in Lancaster County, Izzy smith Waydell beat his conservative Democratic opponent in a primary for a state House seat. smith Waydell is a housing activist and the Lancaster City Council president, and soon he'll be the state House representative for the area. Izzy, welcome to Deconstructed. Hey, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Uh, really honored to be here. And congratulations on your what looks to be a victory last night. Yeah, we are really excited. We weren't able to declare victory while we were still at the party, but the numbers came in shortly after and they've continued into today. We're really proud of what we've accomplished together over here. And so you'll be a state representative and your district will include, what, about half of Lancaster and then Millersville and some of the surrounding area outside of, you know, within Lancaster County? Is that, is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. There's a municipality called Lancaster Township that surrounds the city on both sides, and that's part of the brand new HD 49. And so uh, you may or may not know this, but like right after the 2016 election, I kind of looked around the country looking for a, a place that I could kind of focus some reporting on over the next coming years just to see how you know Hillary's loss and Trump's victory was changing you know both the Republican party and the and the Democratic party and for a variety of different reasons I landed on Lancaster uh, one of them is it's a nice nice driving distance from Washington DC but it's not at all Washington DC <laughs> no it is not and another is I love uh, shoe fly pie it, it is it, it's an Amish delicacy that is you can't get you just can't get it anywhere else. That's so, true, but I'll be honest, Ryan, I can't get through more than two bites. It's delicious. True. It's just too much for me. <laughs> this this is this is also true, but may, maybe that's a virtue of it, actually. Um and so it, it, it's a nice excuse to go visit there. Uh right. and Lancaster had some interesting developments uh and continues to. So, you know, right after the Trump wins, this organization gets formed called uh, Lancaster Stands Up, which was similar to a lot of groups around the around the country that were, you know, that were just kind of developing spontaneously. You saw indivisibles uh, popping up, you know, everywhere across the country, just, sh- just stunned, outraged, shocked, frightened, and ultimately energized people coming together and saying, it looks like there's actually nobody in charge. We thought that there was somebody, you know, manning this ship. There isn't. We're, apparently, we're going to have to do this. Were you at that at that first Lancaster stands up meeting? How did, and also, how did you how did you and your family wind up in uh, in Lancaster? Oh wow. Okay, so I'll answer the second question first. Uh, my grandmother, and actually, I think this is a really important part of my story. Uh, my grandmother was born in northern Georgia in 1921. Uh, My grandfather on my mother's side from the Maryland area, they had a child in Washington, D.C. That was my mother uh, in 1948. So she goes to college in New York. She does her grad school in Philly and moves to Lancaster. And she's, you know, as is fairly common in academia, I think when she got here, her plan was to settle in long enough to get tenure and then trade up 
to a more prestigious, if you will, institution. Mm-hmm. But she ended up sticking around at Millersville, which is one one of Pennsylvania's 14 state-owned universities because she found that there was a lot of opportunity for her uh, to do for black students and the population of African-American students and Latino students at Millersville was starting to increase in the 80s when she when she got here. Uh, and so she's been or she had been in Lancaster uh, since the mid 80s. And she taught at Millersville for 35 years, actually right up until her passing. She passed away in December of 2018 and was still advising students in in October. Um, And so that's how uh, she got here. And of course, I was born and raised here in Lancaster. Now, uh, I was at that first Lancaster Stands Up meeting uh, in the Southern Market Center, which is where I met a lot of people, you know, that I think maybe even to the nationwide progressive set are fairly well known, uh, like your Jonathan Smuckers, Um, but really just got to talk to folks like, Ryan, if you were in the room, you might not have predicted what Lancaster Stands Up would come to be several years later. There were folks uh, off the street, folks from nonprofit young folks, older folks, union folks, several people uh, from uh, Church World Service, which is um, uh, an international um, nonprofit that does refugee resettlement as well as providing other services to refugees and immigrants. And, you know, just staffers and folks from there because they were so terrified of the rising anti-immigrant rhetoric, you know, that, that they'd been hearing. You know, Ryan, I believe a lot actually in the power of shared grief uh, to move us into action. And that was absolutely a space of shared grief and fear. And it has really been to our collective benefit that we've been able to create a structure and an avenue to channel that. And maybe, you know, that was sort of my meaningful intro to progressive organizing in Lancaster County. It's unusual kind of for that you know, some some indivisibles, some local groups have survived and have built structures that have, you know, been able to channel the energy. Others have just kind of fallen apart through apathy. Others kind of internecine fighting over, you know, the the little tiny issues that arise in, inside these groups. And so, like, how many people would you estimate were at that first meeting? And what was it that enabled you guys to turn it into so much local power? Yeah, someone will tell me I'm wrong, but I mean, at at least 300. Mm-hmm. Um, the room was full. Uh, and what's interesting for me is actually that was the fall before I made the decision to run for city council. Um, and I mean, I think Lancaster Stands Up has seen its conflicts internal to the organization and certainly external to the organization with the local Democratic Uh, with the local Democratic committee. But I would say over time, Ryan, it has absolutely been the relationships. I think there's been a core of folks at Lancaster Stands Up, which I would not necessarily include myself in, who have kept an eye on the work and an eye on maintaining relationships and keeping us moving forward. You know that thing, uh, I work in nonprofits, Ryan. You know that thing where someone sends you an email about an exciting opportunity, you send an email back saying yes, and then you don't get a response mm-hmm. for three weeks and you sort of become disillusioned with it? Mm-hmm. There is a lot of work put in at LSU to make sure that that doesn't happen. And I actually think this is a really powerful lesson for organizers is to keep people engaged regularly so that when the big stuff comes, there are groups of people who feel connected and engaged and have had practice and have had opportunities. So I would really chalk it up to that really relationship-based approach, because it's not like the conflicts haven't existed for Lancaster Stands Up. LSU has just been able to survive through it. And how have you seen the Republicans change? I mean, obviously, they were changing subtly in a way that the kind of Republican establishment wasn't even quite noticing, even if Trump was, I guess you could say it starts with the with the Tea Party, and then maybe Republicans thought they had a lid on it, they, you know, that they could channel that energy to their own benefit. You know, people like Boehner and Cantor found out in due time that that wasn't the case. You know, that that they were overwhelmed. You almost have Dr. Oz uh, this time, Trump's candidate, overwhelmed by 
uh, Kathy Barnett surging at the at the very end. You have this uh, extremist who won the gubernatorial race. So was Lancaster, did you notice it changing ahead of Trump's election and helping to produce Trump because Pennsylvania went for Trump? Uh, or do you, or did Trump then kind of become a catalyst that that lit up something um, in the in Republicans and and some right wing independents there that wasn't there before or some combination? So like how how have you watched that element of Lancaster County develop since that first meeting late 2016? Yeah, I'll admit to some humility in the sense that like I wasn't really closely watching the county Republican committee Mm -hmm. before 2016, though, of course, you know, we are well aware in in Lancaster City, the sort of, you know, blue dot in a Red Sea phenomenon that we live in a very conservative county with a strong evangelical Christian influence. And so since that meeting in 2016 and, you know, getting directly involved in politics and organizing, getting to see some of those things up close and personal in response to organizing on the left. And some of it is hardly surprising, but some of it, I'll be honest, was particularly frightening to see. So, for example, to find that the number of folks from Lancaster County uh, who live on streets that I recognize or go to churches that I can name who either went to or sent other people to the January 6th insurrection. Um, And so I think I have, I always feel a little privileged when I'm, whenever I'm surprised. But I will say, I want to make sure that when we talk about the uh, evolution of the Lancaster County Republican Party since 2016, and I think there is a very strong Trump mindset and of you know a very strong group of Trump oriented folks who dominate the Republican Party there have been a number of Republicans who both young Republicans and older Republicans who in rejecting or pushing against some of the Trump based Uh, leadership and the Trump-based energy in the local Republican Party have either found themselves on the outs, uh, like a local leader that Sav and I talked to for about an hour uh, at a polling place yesterday, or put themselves on the outs. And I'm thinking of two gentlemen who are township supervisors in East Lampeter Township, uh, who after January 6th, renounced their participation in the Republican Party and re-registered as independents, Mm. which actually lost the Republican Party uh, control of that Mm. township board. That being said, the Trump energy is very much here. Uh, The stop the steal, the we need a sixth election audit for an election that happened two years ago. It's very present. And I think, you know, we saw it up close and personal. Ryan, I don't know if you are aware, our county commissioners uh, here in Lancaster just voted for the second time to take away Lancaster County's sole election drop box. Hmm. Did not see that. Yeah. So they took it away. It was installed during COVID and they took it away as an administrative action. And the ACLU sued uh, the Lancaster County Board of Elections, which is composed of the county commissioners. And then they did an advertised meeting where they voted to remove the drop box. And listening to people in that meeting on the, you know, Democrat side talk and on the Republican side, you heard very much a lot of this stop the steal narrative. The drop box invites fraud of the kind that we saw in the 2020 election and all of these sort of vague but impassioned gestures uh, to falsified elections that I know, you know, is a big narrative in the Trump and post-Trump Republican Party. And so it's very alive and well here. Sorry for the long answer. Yeah, no, and it, it seems like watching from afar that the Pennsylvania state legislature controlled by Republicans, you know, has been really fixated on what they call election integrity, you know, going back over the 2020 election in Pennsylvania. And it seems to have mostly fueled Mastriano's gubernatorial primary run. Is that is that accurate? And how much of that is this kind of authentic energy and how much of it is these Republicans thinking that maybe if they can get Trump's attention and that's their ticket to rising up the MAGA ranks. 
You know, frankly, there is a lot of this, I hope Senpai notices me energy in terms of like local Republican officials toward Trump, where they do feel like there is this almost this race to the bottom to watch both local and statewide Republican electeds try to be the most like Trump or the most associated with Trump or take pictures at the Trump White House on the Rose Lawn. And we've seen a lot of that. In addition to that, I think it's going to push some of our longer standing Republican incumbents to the right. Um, so if you picked up a copy of LNP, you would see that two incumbents have survived primaries from the right in their Republican districts from just straight up and down, stop the steal insurrectionist candidate. So that energy is here. And I think a concern that a lot of folks in Lancaster County have is that that energy is going to push sort of Republicans once seen as moderate and engageable into this election security, stop the steal narrative to sort of fend off these these primaries. And that's the race to the bottom that I think a lot of people are really worried about. And so while you were on city council, and I guess you're still on city council, yes, sir. the kind of movement generally, Democrats, Lancaster stands up, you Democrats broadly in Lancaster in the area won this rather stunning victory in Mannheim Township, uh, flipping a pretty conservative yeah. area, uh, Democratic. Yeah. So how'd you pull that off and then update me on where that is? Because I, I hear it had it didn't go so well. Yeah, that's another one I can't take credit for. Uh, all the credit, of course, goes to the folks organizing up there directly in Mannheim Township. You know, uh, of course, Allison Troy, who was running that race, who was like a very relatable candidate, very good talking to people at the doors and making people feel heard. And the, the organizing work of one PD Gantert, along with a lot of other folks, and I think it really goes to the organizing philosophy that what you do is you build relationships and you reach people on their terms. You knock their doors, you text them and you call them and you do that in a broad based way. And you don't you don't give up uh, on really anybody. That is to say, you knock as many doors as possible, you knock Republican doors, you knock less likely or less frequently voting Democrat doors, and you knock your base because you know that you need to turn out everyone. You know that you need to do voter education and persuasion and GOTV uh, to win in these, you know, in these purple districts. And a lot of folks, Allison will tell you this herself, a lot of folks said that campaign wouldn't win in Mannheim Township, uh, but it did, and it and it won big. So since then, in the most recent election, and it, I must you know got to acknowledge the sort of national tide of the stop the steal and the anti CRT um, and the anti trans rhetoric uh, around schools that really motivated and buoyed the Republicans in Mannheim Township, both in their commissioner and in their school board races. I don't want to pretend that the national trends don't exist, and I don't want to pretend that the narratives are not important. But I think also what we saw in that race uh, was the state senator for that area, Ryan Almond, gave $50,000 to those municipal and school board races. And so from established Democratic- So Republican. The re so the Republican yes, incumbent. sorry. Yeah. The Republican incumbent, uh, Ryan Almond, put $50,000 into those municipal and school races. Our established Democratic leadership, our state representative, county commissioner, our party, were not really prepared to throw down in Mannheim Township in the same way. And so there we didn't see the same level of funding for Democrats or even a really comparable level as to what Republicans were bringing, though the Democrats in, in Mannheim Township tried very hard. And some of those races actually came down to a few hundred votes. And I think this has a lot to do with the direction of the Democratic Party, uh, not just here in Lancaster County, but all throughout Pennsylvania. And some of the tension, I think, between your indivisible groups, your PA stands up, your Lancaster stands up, and your more established Democratic committees. And as someone who exists and works in both worlds, the difference 
in that organizing philosophy and sort of a you are your siblings keeper energy that I think progressive organizing groups have in the sense that like, yes, I am in this municipality, but I need to come to your neighboring municipality because we're all in this together and we're going to help you fundraise and we're going to help you knock doors. That sort of approach, uh, I think, is going to become increasingly necessary because there is a lot that is happening in the Republicans favor right now. And so a scarcity mindset for Democrats is just not going to work. It's not going to help us flip seats. And we're going to find ourselves going backwards in ways that we really don't want to and that we really can't afford to. And I think that Mannheim Township is a key example of that. And I wonder if there's some overlap there with the Pennsylvania Senate Democratic primary here, because you had, I'm curious for your take on this this race, because you had one candidate, a congressman, Connor Lamb from outside Pittsburgh, who actually gave up a House seat. And it's now, you could tell me if you think I'm wrong, it's probably, they call it a toss up, but in in this wave year, it probably ends up flipping. Uh, so he, he risks a yep. safe Democratic seat because he's popular in that area. He would have won re-election. Uh, sure. he, he, ru- he runs for Senate and his strategy was clear. He's like, I am going to crisscross the state. I'm going to meet with every Democratic official who will meet with me, which is all of them. And I'm going to meet with every Democratic county organization that I can find, and I'm going to rack up all of the organization's endorsements. And as a result of that, I'm going to win. Like that was his very clear path. And and he was going to rely on some, you know, big money from the outside and some, you know, super PAC support. But but ultimately his run was going to be kind of through the party. Then you had John Fetterman, who, despite being lieutenant governor, doesn't seem to have much of a warm relationship with the the structures, if you want to call it that, of the of the old Democratic Party. And if you line up his endorsements against Connor Lamb's, it's page after yep. page after page for Lamb and like, you know, three people uh, for, for Fetterman. And then you have Malcolm Kenyatta, kind of a rising star out of uh, Philadelphia, I think state, state rep, I think. That's correct. Who I think surprised people by pulling as much as he did in the race, but without any name recognition around, you know, around the state and without the kind of money to, to get that name recognition, he was always, he was always going to struggle. So it ended up becoming between Fetterman and Lamb. And what it revealed to me is that there isn't much of a party. Like the party could not, you know, every party endorsement across state couldn't do anything to stave off the wipeout, you know, from the hospital, Fetterman beat him two to one. I think it was called within like 12 minutes of the, of the polls closing. Yeah. So what does that say about what's left of the Democratic Party in Pennsylvania? And 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 what does that say about Fetterman's Senate race and and Democrats' ability to hold it in 2024? Ryan, I mean, your case of events is exactly right. Almost every Democratic official, uh, I'm a member of the Democratic Party State Committee in Pennsylvania. State committee members very nearly, very nearly uh, endorsed Connor Lamb. And so did the Lancaster County Dem Committee. There is a lot of this kind of popularity among uh, the Democratic establishment who see Connor Lamb as being pragmatic, as having a plan, not being too extreme and reaching moderate voters. And I, I have to be honest, and I, I, this thing has always frustrated me because I'm of the mind that the sort of swayable Republican or this large population of independents who are just looking for someone on the Democratic side to come out and be you know, more reasonable than the Republicans, those populations just simply aren't as large uh, as we like to pretend that they are. And so that is a narrative that has influenced Democratic primaries. You know, we've said over and over, well, yes, he's great with Democrats and great with the base and his policies are popular or her policies are popular, but we're going to go with this person because they're less likely to scare off Republicans. And and I'm just not sure, frankly, that the math has worked Mm -hmm. out in general elections. But more importantly than that, uh, it does not feel or seem like Democratic voters uh, were really listening to that message anymore. And I'll tell you, you know, I talk to people at the doors all the time, Ryan. People say things like, you know, I'm tired of all the bickering. I'm tired of all the 
infighting across party lines. And then they will turn right around and say, but I want a Democrat who is going to fight for these issues, fight for the right to vote, fight for the Mm -hmm. right to choose and actually push back in a real way. And, you know, I think that if you talk to any voter long enough, you will discover some part of their political constellation that that doesn't make sense to you. But uh, I think that people want folks that they see as relatable and they want folks that they see as fighters who are going to push on policies that are going to make that are going to make their lives better. And so that's a whole long rambling way of saying, honestly, probably John Fetterman had so much name recognition and ID across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that anybody was going to struggle. But the strategy of just going to the Democratic establishment and expecting that to seal the race up for you. My hope is that with, you know, this most recent PA Senate primary, that that's dead. You've got to get out and make sure that you are reaching uh, people. And there's also something that's concerning there about what is the connection of local Democratic committees to their voters as well, because that's supposed to be the relationship. The understanding is you reach the Democratic committee and then the Democratic committee is doing the hard work of going out and reaching voters in individual neighborhoods and on individual blocks. And so I think we really got two questions. One, how valid is the sort of endorsement and the support of the Democratic establishment when detached from other things? And on a more local on the ground organizing level, how do we revive the I go out and I knock my neighbor's doors for the candidate and I do it every week and I talk to them all the time energy that I think that the Democratic Party used to have and certainly progressive organizers are very much about. But I think a lot of people around the state are feeling that that energy is missing and they're going different directions because of it. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And what's so fascinating to me about Fetterman's total romp is that the only thing you could really find activists like you know lefty activists in like philadelphia and pittsburgh and then pennsylvania establishment figures across the state agreeing on was this kind of skepticism of fetterman i don't want to say hostility for some it was hostility but in general kind of a skepticism there was what like what is it about fetterman that kind of rubbed so many people the the wrong way yet still enabled him to win this like absolute landslide victory and and we can Move there in a summer Lee who you know who wins who appears to have won her her race against uh, Steve Irwin after building her own kind of big organization in in Pittsburgh, um, but there was there seemed to be no love lost between that organization and 
and Fetterman. And so from an outside perspective, it's like, what's going on here? This guy seems okay. What's the, is he kind of like a jerk in person or like, you know, what's the, what, what are we not seeing from the outside? You know, I've met John Fetterman several times. He's come to Lancaster County a number of times. Um, obviously, you know, he's in or he was in a hospital here in Lancaster County. But the first time I met him, it was at a state committee dinner or gala uh, four or five years ago. Everybody's in a suit. Uh, some of the ladies are in gowns. And John Fetterman is in like a Guy Fieri old head from the barbershop shirt, uh, shorts and sneakers. And I know that that's very much a part of his image. Uh, and I think that that resonates with a lot of people and it makes a lot of people feel close to him. And he gives the impression that he is saying what he means at all times. Uh, and he's straightforward. And you know what, what John Fetterman likes to do is John likes to show up. And I think when you see that a lot, and, and what I mean is that I'm not evaluating his presence sort of like on the ground in the nitty gritty with the communities he's represented and been a part of, but part of the John Fetterman narrative is it's like, oh, John's at this union rally. He's supporting folks here. He's over here in Braddock. He's over here um, and sort of, you know, shaking things up and, you know, coming out openly and strong on things like the right to choose on the minimum wage union way of life uh, legal marijuana and i think that appeals to uh, that appeals to a lot of folks i will also say and this is not a knock on on uh, john fetterman this is just reality to cultivate that very casual i can wear a hoodie wherever i want image um there's a little white privilege there and privilege isn't like a layer of analysis that i particularly enjoy but i think i have to say like anytime mm -hmm. i talk about john i need to say that like a black candidate could right. not reach this level of notoriety and success in this america uh just walking around wearing a hoodie and sneakers i don't, I don't think know, that's don't a controversial statement at all no <laughs> um and speaking of that uh there was an analysis that I saw this morning that was interesting that that showed him doing quite well in black precincts around the state. You know, and there had been a lot of warnings from the Connor Lamb campaign and from Kenyatta's as well that that was not going to be the case, particularly because of this 2013 incident where he chased down a black jogger and mm -hmm. nobody disputes. The, the only dispute is whether he pointed the shotgun at the jogger or held the shotgun up. Either way, he detained the young man uh, with a shotgun saying that he had heard uh, gunshots. Now, people say that, yes, they did hear either gunshots or fireworks, uh, that, that that part is true. Uh, he, held, he held the guy until uh, the police showed up and the police were like, what are you doing? This is a jogger. Let, let the man go. Uh, Fetterman also has said he didn't know that the person was black, which don't quite understand how you would not know that because that's, you know, it's not something you need to see ID for, you know, and it, and that incident has dogged him each time he's, you know, risen, you know, tried to rise in, in politics, but he seems to have overcome it, particularly in, in these black precincts. What's your read on that incident and, and how that will just play politically uh, going forward for him? Yeah. Uh, I mean, my read as a person uh, on that incident is like, don't follow people with guns. Don't follow joggers with guns. Don't. Yeah, that's a that seems like right. a good like, rule of life. Don't do yeah. that. Um, and whether I think part of the the recollection of the incident is that he was wearing, you know, maybe sort of like a balaclava type you know, mm. mask, you know, to keep his face warm and maybe gloves. And so maybe that's part of the claim that, you know, he could not immediately identify this person's race. And I think about that in terms of, of course, um, Ahmaud Arbery. And it sort of, in, you know, instills this kind of fear in me about like with Buffalo as a context, uh, most recently, it instills this kind of fear in me about black people just being able to live, go to the grocery store, go for a run, be in public spaces. Um, and I think a lot of those things, the fear of the inability to do that motivated a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement. But I'll tell you, when I talk to people, white, black, about 
John Fetterman. Fewer people have heard about that incident than I think we think. You know, I think that there is a way of, you know, you mm-hmm. consume a lot of politics and you get to thinking that certain things are very common knowledge. Uh, but I think there's sort of a both sides thing happening. And I'll tell you, not it's not like every other black voter is aware of this. And so, again, we come back to, you know, sort of mayor of an African-American community able to approach and talk to black people. And again, good on policies that are popular with black folks, with working class white folks, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not surprising to me that he's popular in in African-American communities because John Fetterman is a household name. And as much as some folks have tried to make it, the jogger incident is not a household topic of conversation. They're just not the uh, the reach isn't the same level on on those two topics. And I wonder if Republicans will have a hard time exploiting it in the general election for the simple fact that a good chunk of their base will hear that story and be like, well, good for him. Now, it won't land with a lot of Republican voters across Pennsylvania, I would I would think. Like this, right, but I don't think they're going to try to get it to land with Republican voters. I think their goal is to try to get it to depress black turnout. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, um, just seed then, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh with it. Yeah, exactly. This is this is the thing. Like when we look at a Kathy Barnett, when we look at a Candace Owens, we can see pretty clearly that the way that Republicans engage with the black community or sort of deploy their black surrogates, associates and spokespersons is really to either depress black turnout or to sort of fulfill a white idea of what black people should be. Like you don't have, you've never seen Candace Owens barnstorming black churches in the South for Republican candidates, because that's not, that's not her job uh, narratively. Mm -hmm. Like they're not trying to turn up uh, black turnout for Republicans. Um, It's just not a goal that they have. So, I think Republicans are going to have a hard time weaponizing that in the general election because there are too many really strong counter narratives against the Republicans on guns. And if John's team has some good comms people, some great comms people, like, for example, I have in Savannah, uh, they are going to walk him out of that narratively like it is an open paper bag and redirect to issues of gun safety, community investment, affordable housing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, That is absolutely what Sav would have me do uh, if I were if I were John. And so it's fairly logical for me to see how he gets out of that and back to his issues. And so how, how does uh, Summerlee fit into this rising energy that we've seen in Pennsylvania on the left? I, I love the way that you frame that question, because I, I don't really think Summerlee fits in as much <laughs> as she sort of typifies it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in Western PA, the number of people who are rallying around her as an individual, uh, but her energy and her approach um, and just sort of like the the level of being unapologetic. And one of the things that I love, and we know, as we know, uh, Republican-funded super PACs dumped millions of dollars into that race. I'll tell you, Ryan, I have gotten sick and tired of watching progressives sort of cower from the establishment and try not to offend them too much to what we see among progressives all across the state, Pittsburgh, Philly, everywhere, naming this corporate PAC money that is attempting to influence our elections, naming its sources, naming why it's bad for our elections and bad for our communities. This is one of the most powerful things that progressives can do. If we are organizing to reach people at the doors in the communities and we can get to people and then we're we are naming what the violation of our shared values is and what we're going to do instead of that i think that's powerful for people uh and you know i'm pretty well convinced um that we're gonna see in summer lee's race that that will overcome multiple millions of dollars of spending i also wanted to talk about your agenda when you get to when you get to Harrisburg, you know, you've been you know, on, on the council and also in your you know, professional life, d- big into, into housing. And I really think that housing has become kind of the central crisis facing American society at this point. Like it's, it's the thing 
that is driving so many of the other crises. It, if if you didn't own a home by the time the music stopped, uh, you're just you're you're. I don't want to say screwed because uh, you know people. Not everybody is screwed, but you're so far behind the eight ball at this point. Housing prices are just climbing and climbing and climbing. You know, far far outpacing uh, wages. You know, sucking all all of your income in. What's that been like in Lancaster? I, you know, and when I was when I visited there, I've noticed there's some uh, gentrification going on, just like there is across the world. You know, it's not even unique to the United States. All of c- cities, large and small, are starting to look identical all all over the world. Uh, and you're starting to even see, you're starting to see it in Lancaster yep. as well. What's what's the housing situation like there? And w- what what about that made you you know decide that you needed to get into Harrisburg? Yes, Ryan, you are absolutely right. And that situation applies to Lancaster as much as anywhere else. Um, housing prices are climbing rapidly. And this is, look, as much as it is because of like small level policy decisions, we've also made like a fundamental philosophical mistake as both global and local economies. And that's this we've mistaken the first highest and best use of a home. <laughs> and I like I don't want to oversimplify it, but the first highest and best use of a home is to house human beings and be a space from which folks can build community outward and connect to others. And when we treat it as a stock or a bond, as a financial instrument, of course, it's going to spiral up and boom and bust and crash. And uh, with this particular, you know, asset or financial instrument, uh, you know, when it booms, busts, crashed, even when it spirals up, it has the effect of making people unhoused by the thousands or even the the millions at a time. And so we have to fundamentally reapproach what we think that a home is for. There is a young woman who is featured uh, heavily, both in my motivation for running my campaign, uh, but it has also, you know, come to a number of events at the campaign. For example, she came with us to a rally for State Senator Nikhil Saval's whole home repairs bill uh, right here in, in Lancaster City, which you know, if you're wondering what part of my housing platform will be, uh, it will be enthusiastically supporting and fighting for that bill in particular. But this young woman, you know, she's doing the things, right? Like if you listen to what we're told is the contract of America, uh, she's working two jobs, she's, you know, raising her kids, she's sending them to school, uh, but the apartment that she's living in keeps getting more expensive and keeps getting lower and lower quality. I'm talking about black mold, I'm talking about falling apart appliances. And so the contract is not being held up. And That's part of how we approach the work that we do. If we see a problem once, we assume that it's being reproduced throughout our community. Thousands of people's families are experiencing the same thing in Lancaster. They are seeing a lot of the development, a lot of the new institutions that folks rave about. And the way that they're understanding that because they are black or brown or working class is that not only will they not be included in the come up, but that somebody else's come up will push them out of their communities and put them down. And they're so much invested um, in doing exactly that, that, you know, I think their fears are founded. Last Tuesday council in the city of Lancaster, we took action to restrict the number of short-term rentals, Airbnbs, uh, in Lancaster City, which are known in metros all across the U.S. uh, to drive up housing prices Mm -hmm. and to crowd out uh, local residents in the competition for both home ownership and rentals. And just listening to people come and talk about how this upset them. Of course, there were folks who who came and really a lot of them who said, this is what we need, or in fact, this is not enough action. But I, I listened to a gentleman come to the podium and describe himself. He said he is proudly part of the first gentrification of a neighborhood in Lancaster City. He's part of the first gentrification of Old Town. And he said that very proudly. And, you know, 
uh, folks talked about how council was attacking their businesses and their dreams of owning Airbnbs. And that's how we think of housing in America, mm-hmm. Ryan, as primarily serving folks whose dream it is uh, to become wealthy through land holding or to own a certain kind of business. That is more important than any persons who might be displaced or disconnected from their family home or an opportunity to build any kind of generational wealth or community. Uh, those things are small potatoes in American society when compared to, again, somebody's dream, I guess, of owning a series of Airbnbs. You know, I, I stayed in an Airbnb when I, yeah. one of the times I visited a couple years ago, and I remember thinking, and Lancaster's a beautiful city, you know, with, with these, uh, with row, row houses, some, some, you know, large swaths of, of the town, you know, no offense, kind of run, run down, but, yeah. but you can see the beauty, um, that, that was there and it, which is, and is a, which has a very Pennsylvania vibe and you can see the beauty that very easily could be there if the if you know with a with a little bit of turnaround and I remember thinking this is a lovely little row house that we're staying in here it doesn't it should not be an Airbnb I remember thinking that like we should be in a hotel like this this should there should be a family who lives in Lancaster in this in this place that we're that we're in right now we, we enjoyed ourselves we brought the whole family up but I'm glad you did that because it, it, it did feel like it was holding the the neighborhood back because I wasn't gonna you know paint the house on the front you know I, uh, we're we're in and we're out right you know I my community where I live in southeast Lancaster City there was a study done in 2009 so this is years and years ago uh, by the local college at Franklin and Marshall and what that study bore out was that about 20 million dollars left Southeast Lancaster City every year in rents to landlords and property management companies who were not a part of that community, many of whom were not in the city or county at all. And so the way that I talk to people about this here in Lancaster, uh, when I talk to my neighbors, I say, how could we make this community different if we had $20 million more every year to invest in this community? What if your stuff was not being sent elsewhere, Portland, Maine, Florida, Philadelphia, what have you, but it was that money was being invested right here in the community every time you paid your rent or made a repair or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, even that, you know, goes a little bit into the narratives of capital. But the core idea, Ryan, is this, and that's that communities and neighborhoods are strongest um, when they can bond together, exercise their resources and relationships together. And Airbnb's by definition, uh, interfere with that. And they make no, you know, they make no bones or claims that they do anything, they do anything but that because they are primarily for tourists and primarily for the development of some person's wealth. And so few of them uh, are owned by people who live in Lancaster City, uh, much less in the community that they're owned in. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, of the people that came to that meeting, you know, we had a number of folks who said, who started their comments, well, I don't live in the city, but I'm a taxpayer. I don't live in the city, but I don't own several businesses. And what I'm hearing is, okay, you have a level, a different level of stake. This is your opportunity to make money. And I simply can't weigh that higher than somebody's opportunity to like have a home, live, raise a child. And so you and I were talking earlier about this system that the Pennsylvania legislature has set up that classifies places like Lancaster is literally what third class, what do they call it? A third class city? <laughs> a, uh, a city of the third class, a city, yeah, a city which I personally of, resent. But. It's deeply resentful. Uh, <laughs> but, but what it means is that basically they're going to tell you how they run the city. You know, there are a lot of peons to local control. Uh, but as we know, going back to pre-Civil War days, that's, that, you know, that's, that's always been instrumental. That's not a serious kind of principle that the right in this country has right. ever has ever felt and if it goes against their uh their vision then they they toss that instrument right out and so you it's it sounds to me like you, Lancaster City Council can't do much when it comes to governing itself because the legislature is the one that kind of sets sets guardrails around that 
Are there any Republicans who represent these kinds of towns that will be able to team up with you to get this changed? Or do you think Democrats just have to take over? Because now, you know, local control is becoming reversed uh, under the kind of DeSantis model of finding school boards that are either doing something crazy or doing something that they can call crazy, getting it on Fox News, and then, you know, scaring, scaring people, and then saying, well, obviously, we can't allow local control, because look what these look what they're going to do, they're going to groom children and turn them into like anti racists or, you know, you know, the whole drill, you know, it better than I do living in in Lancaster County. Um, So where does that go from here? Yeah, okay. So you said, a lot there. And I rem- I'm sitting here feeling like, okay, I want to make sure that I respond to each of that. So first and foremost, let me let me reframe. Um, I actually think that Lancaster City Council can do a lot and has done a lot. You know, uh, we have record investments in affordable housing. Uh, we decriminalized marijuana in the city of Lancaster passed a new use of force policy for our police and initiated a a lead hazard remediation program, which has gotten lead out of 300 households in Lancaster City. Um, And we're going back to do another do another 400 more. The way I frame it is Lancaster count Lancaster City Council. There are things that we can absolutely do when we're doing them, but we could do so much more if Harrisburg would let us, would give us the respect of letting us and our people govern ourselves. I'll give you a good example. You know, we've been talking about the the fight for 15 forever, though, of course, you know, even in Lancaster County, a living wage for a single individual is $16 now. But if we can set that briefly aside, Lancaster City uh, can't set its own minimum wage policy. Uh, we, you know, we were told Harrisburg won't allow that. And you want to talk about an easy bipartisan political win. Uh, how about a property tax break for seniors? But when we tried to do that, what we were told was that Harrisburg won't let municipalities like ours deliver that for our folks. Over and over, we are running into this. And I think one of the ways that most reaches people, like when I go to explain this to people at the doors, for example, I'm saying, look, Harrisburg is not even just saying what laws we can pass. It's also saying you really can only raise revenue in a way that you can adjust through property taxes. So when we're trying to serve you better as a city, we are raising your taxes to do that, and we're making it even harder to own a home. We're making you pick between affordable home ownership, for example, and the quality of your child's school. And that's just a vicious cycle that Harrisburg has, Lancaster, and the other 53 third-class cities across the Commonwealth trapped in. And that's 1.3 million Pennsylvanians um, who are just like, can't even be effectively represented by their local legislators. And yes, to answer your final question, Ryan, I do think uh, that there is bipartisan energy to make some of these changes, but I don't think it exists with the Republican leadership. And I'll be honest, I think it is instrumental just just as you, you know, just as you described it, part of the advantage of starving cities of local control and actual efficacy is that many of the cities are represented by Democrats and they are communities of color. And it serves the Republicans in Harrisburg to make those communities more dysfunctional. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, our campaign has been has been a mechanism of talking about how to push back against that. Well, Izzy, best of luck in pulling that off in, in Harrisburg. And congrats again thank on, you. Your, on your victory. Uh, thank you so much. I'm really uh, honored. And all the credit really has to go uh, out to this community. If I can take my closing seconds uh, to brag, um, you know, right the away. team. Yeah, no, the team knocked thousands of doors, uh, raised thousands of dollars, sent thousands of texts, made thousands of calls. And again, I think it comes back to the 
philosophy of organizing that progressives have, and that is that our work is fundamentally about relationships. And I think that that's how we, you know, that's how we won. And not just won in, you know, we didn't just skate by. We won in a way that says the people of HD 49, even though they are diverse racially, economically, geographically, are looking for a change and looking for a team that is going to fight for our values. And I'm just honored that they are trusted our team to do that. And well, best of luck. Thank you so much, Ryan. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. That was Izzy Smith-Waydell, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Mm-hmm.